Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. This morning, we're going to uh, follow the story of Zacharias. Uh, We're going to look at this a little bit closer, a little bit more detail going on here. So there's going to be a a little bit of uh, switching back and forth in chapter 1 through this great story. We're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see those three tenses of salvation that we talked about last week. We're also going to uh, see a connection between the idea of redemption and salvation. We're going to stress again prayer because that is something that we need to stress continually as the people of God. We are to be a house of prayer, whether you know that or not. And so as a house of prayer, we should be the people who, when somebody says, can you pray for me, we're the people that say, absolutely, that's what we want to do. So we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about the prayer of the saints. We're going to connect that with something very important, and that is an Old Testament principle of burning incense in, uh, in the temple at the altar. And no, I'm not... Uh, advocating for grabbing an Old Testament principle and bringing it back into the fore. I just want to show you this picture of what was commanded to God's people in the Old Covenant and how Zacharias is actually playing out this grand story in his actions in Luke chapter 1. We're also then going to look at several different components uh, that have practical application along the way. So as a starting point, we're going to go back to verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. And as we go back to uh, verse 5, we will see how this great story of Zacharias is going to connect a lot of things that we've talked about over the past two weeks. We're going to talk about our doubts again. We're going to talk about what we ought to do in response to those doubts. Uh, and you'll see that there's a lot uh, lot involved with this message. So without further ado, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. We'll read 5, 6, and 7 first, and then I'll unpack them along the way. Uh, these are the words of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So here's the three things that you need to see right off the bat. Number one, Zacharias and Elizabeth are of a priestly caste. So they have a responsibility, or Zacharias has a role, and uh, Elizabeth has a heritage, has a lineage that she comes from. And this is a very important uh, background for them. Zacharias is an actual priest at this moment. He is serving in his roles as priest. And Elizabeth has an amazing lineage in that she is said to be of the daughters of Aaron. And this is the the priest, the first established priest in Old Testament times. So what a powerful, what a powerful lineage. I think we all think about who who we come from, what's what's our line, where do we where do we originate from? It'd be pretty powerful to be able to say, I come from 
the uh, sons of or the daughters of these particular people. So the first thing that we have to see is the priestly caste that they belong to. The second thing that we need to look at is that they were both righteous in the sight of God, and righteousness is defined here. It's not arbitrary. Righteousness is defined as walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Just a brief understanding of how this worked in the Old Testament versus how it works in the New Testament. It didn't change. Your righteousness is the same now as it was then. What do you mean, Nathan? We have Jesus now. True. But by grace, through faith, the righteous of the Old Testament looked forward to a coming Messiah. We, righteous through By grace, through faith, now look back to a Messiah who came and died on a cross and a Messiah who will one day come again. Okay, So it's the same exact idea. Make no mistake, people from the Old Testament are saved. They are with God. We see on the Mount of Transfiguration people like Elijah and Moses meeting with Jesus. So we know that they are a part of God's covenant people. The question is how? And that is that God didn't change the way men and women are saved. We are saved and always have been by grace through faith. Something didn't change in that respect in the new covenant. So they were looking forward to a coming Messiah. They had put their faith and put their hope in something. And we know who that something is or who that someone is. So they were righteous, but their righteousness played out just as our righteousness ought to play out. They were blameless and they were blameless in the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. How does this jive with something like Romans 3 where it says that no one is righteous, no, not one? Isn't Luke 1 contradicting what Paul would say later? Obviously, we don't believe that there are contradictions in the Scripture. Therefore, we have to understand Paul means something by no one is righteous, no, not one. No one is righteous by their own merits. No one is righteous on their own. Uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth both walked by faith, okay? They walked by faith. That faith played out in obeying the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Practical application for us today. We are a people of faith, but faith without works is dead. Amen? So we have an action that flows from our faith. The third thing that I want you to see in these three verses is that they had no children or had no child. And Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So there's clear echoes for a faithful Jewish people. There's clear echoes of Abraham and Sarah here. Advanced in years, but not having any children. They knew exactly what that story was. They knew how it played out. And they were longing for that very thing. Now, you can look at this and say, okay, Nathan, that's, that's all wonderful stuff. But what does that have to do with anything when it comes to salvation? What does that have to do with anything when it comes to incense like you talked about before? Well, when... When we look at what Zacharias is about to do in the temple, we have to understand something important. And that is that Zacharias is about to pray in the temple, and he's about to burn incense, but he is not doing this solely for the purpose of, God, I want a baby. God, I want to have a child. That was probably a part of his prayer 
I believe that I could make a solid case that that was a part of his prayer. But the angel's response and Zechariah's prophecy, which we're going to get to at the end of the message today, are going to prove that he wanted something far more than just this baby. He wanted something far bigger than just this particular baby. So, we have to see this. Now, we've got those three important things. A priestly caste, they were righteous in the sight of God, they walked by faith, and they had no children. So, one day, uh, Zacharias is offering incense in the temple, and this, again, is no trivial matter. Look at what verse 8 says. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division... According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Choosing by lot was a way of them identifying who God selected among the uh, selected. So there was, a, there was a priestly order, and among that priestly order, somebody has to say, this is the right one, this is the wrong one, and God was the one who selected that. So they cast lots. We see the same thing play out in the book of Acts when they choose Matthias as the 12th apostle, uh, the replacement for Judas Iscariot. So they're casting lots here. So he's performing his priestly duty uh, to burn incense in the temple. Now, where does this idea of burning incense come from? It actually comes from Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, and you can find all of this in verses 1 through, 1 through 10, 1 through 9. But if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. But here's, here's what it says. It says, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be made of one piece with it. You will overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two sides, side walls, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil, that is, near the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where God spoke to his high priest, where God spoke to his people. The mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Verse 7, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, and he shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout our generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on the altar, or burnt offerings, or meal offerings, or you shall not pour out drink offerings on it. And of course, this was violated by Nadab and Abihu, and they were struck down because of the strange fire that they offered. So we're going to tie that in with why Zacharias might have actually been scared. Uh, in just a second when the angel appears to him. But here's what I want you to understand. This idea of incense burning was deeply, intimately connected with the prayer of God's people. This fragrant smoke 
okay? This burning of incense symbolized the prayers of God's people in the biblical world. This connection may uh, seem a bit uh, tenuous, but a simile is found in uh, Psalm 141, verse 2. And you can just write this down for your notes and, and study it on your own. But Psalm 141, verse 2 says this, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So David is talking about how his prayer and how his hands raised were both uh, like, notice that language, like the incense burning uh, and like the sacrifice. But we see prayer and we see sacrifice connected here. In Luke 1.10, Remember what verse, or in Luke 1, remember what verse 10 says. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside because the incense burning and the prayers of the saints were all intimately connected. So all of this happened, and this is not uncommon for the Jewish world. There were, there were acts that the people did, and then there was an act that the priest would do that kind of took that act of the people before God. This is simply how Jewish tradition plays out. So it's not strange to their worldview. It's strange to us because we say, well... We're a royal priesthood. I can talk to God. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Christ Jesus. That's absolutely true. We don't have a problem with that. I'm not challenging that. I am simply telling you that in this day, there was a view that the priest would do it. I I would also connect that the way it happens truly in our world today is that the prayers of the saints are offered up and that the Son carries those prayers to the Father. That seems to be the way it is connected. Yes, we are praying our Father who art in heaven, but Jesus is the mediator between us and God, and so there seems to be a greater connection there. So what we're seeing here is the burning of incense and the prayers of the saints connected. It appears overt, though, when we look at Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, here's what it says. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Can't get more emphatic than that. Can't get more clear than that. So the, the bowl full of incense, this kind of censer that was, that was made, uh, was representative of the prayers of the saints. This is confirmed in Revelation 8.3 in this wording. It matches that of Exodus. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So where did, uh, where did Zacharias present this offering of incense? The golden altar that Exodus 30 tells us about. So now in Revelation, we have the angels doing this same thing. And then in Revelation 8.4, it says, The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hands. So you can see the connection of what's happening. The angel takes it before God, and the incense goes, and so do the prayers of God's saints. Because of the way the earthly tabernacle is reflecting God's heavenly sanctuary, we see this in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9, it may be assumed that Moses and the Israelites understood the incense altar as uh, as a way for the people to uh, perpetually or to pray at all times. Why? Because when were these offered? Morning and night. Morning and night. This, this is a simply phrasing for all the time. 
So, so this incense is burnt, this incense for the people of God, and they are offering this up to God's people, or to God on behalf of his people. Okay, what does all that have to do with any of this stuff? When Zacharias is going into the temple to offer the incense and the prayers of the people, you can be assured that prayer was far more than God give us a baby. However, God give us a baby makes sense. Same prayer was offered by Abraham. Same prayer was offered by Sarah. They wanted God to fulfill something in the physical. How many of you want God to fulfill something in your life in the physical? How many of you are lying? Awesome. Okay, so you want God to fulfill something. That's really awesome. But what I want you to understand is that prayer for Jewish people was far bigger than just me and God. The all request hour with King Jesus. So we're sitting there saying, here's what I want, here's when I want it, here's how much I want. None of, none of that, okay? Sure, sure, God cares for the needs of his people. Don't miss that. But even Zacharias, in all of his longing and wanting, was going uh, with a weighty task before him. And that weighty task was to offer up the prayers of the people. Before a holy God. So while he's doing this, that's where we have to connect all of this story of salvation. We have to connect what is happening in this grand story. So back to uh, Luke chapter 1. Now it happened that, this is verse 8, now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was scared to death. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him, verse 12 says. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Now make no mistake, he also tells Mary, do not be afraid. I think, I think an angel showing up is going to scare all y'all more than you think it's going to scare you, right? Oh, I want my guardian angels to drive with me in the car. Maybe just drive better, Drive better, that's my suggestion, right? Uh, because if an angel shows up, you're going to be so scared, you're going to careen off to the side of the road, okay? So, so, Zacharias is troubled when he sees the angel. Fear grips him, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Well, Nathan, it says that was his petition. Sure, it was part of his petition, but look at what the angel goes on to say, and then let's, let's go down into the later parts of the chapter, and we're going to see Zechariah's prophecy, and we're going to see it was far bigger than just having a baby. So, uh, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Oh, that sounds great. Zacharias is going to have a family party because they're going to have a baby finally. Nope, more than that. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Okay, now you're getting a little off of my prayer, Lord, but sure, I'll take this baby anyway. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Hmm? He's going to do what? 
You're going to turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, before we get into Zechariah's doubt again and his saying, how in the world can I know that this is true? What period of time are we in in this grand story? We're in a period of time that is now known labeled by scholars as the intertestamental period. Here's what we're forgetting, most likely. What we're forgetting is that God has not spoken for over 400 years. You can pray, you can ask God for a lot of things, and he has sat silent for over 400 years. And these people are longing and waiting. But here's what they're not doing. They're not letting their responsibility go. Zacharias, lots fell to him. He has to go in on the daily rotation. He is offering incense. The prayers of the saints are being offered up with that incense before God. And God has been sitting silent for 400 years. Last words that have come down were from a prophet named Malachi, and everybody's wondering what is happening in this story. But Zacharias is still righteous. Zacharias is still a man of faith. Zacharias and his wife are still people who want to obey God by faith, walk after him, ask him for their provision and their needs. We're going to trust him, but God still remains silent. And then all of a sudden, after 400 years, an angel shows up. And scares the snot out of Zacharias. And I think you know more why now. This wasn't a regular occurrence. This wasn't something that took place every day. Hey, I'm going in to do my priestly service. I'll probably see an angel. (laughs) It's just my job. Nope. It's not the way it worked. So he goes in, he's praying, he's offering up the prayers of the saints, he's doing his priestly duty, an angel shows up, and he panics. So with that understanding, let's go to verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, after he told him all this stuff, and it's far more than just having a baby boy, all of a sudden something about this baby boy is going to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, That is a prophetic word that they had heard before the intertestamental period. Uh, And that he is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Another idea that they had heard previous to the intertestamental period or the silence of God. Verse 18, Zacharias says to the angel, how will I know this for certain? Okay, so you're a man of faith. You're following God. You're trusting him. But the issue is, is that... When he speaks to you, you have this great deal of doubt. In other words, your question uh, is not asking God a question. It's questioning God and you're saying, prove it. How can I know that this is going to be the case? I don't know, Zacharias. Nobody's talked about angel visitations in a while. How about that one for you, bud? But so, so he says, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answers him and said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now, I think that had more of a dad voice attached to it than the way I just read it. Okay? I think it sounded far more like, I'm Gabriel. Right? You know what happens when you do that. <laughs> my daughters go, whoop. 
uh-oh, what is happening, right? Dad voice comes in. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I could add idiot there, but no. Uh, I, I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak. Notice this really quick because we're about to jump down. Silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Okay, so now let's roll ourselves down past Mary's song into John being born. Okay, so we've got John being born in this next series of verses. And we have to connect what is happening. Incense burning, prayers of the saints. It's a bigger prayer than I just want a baby. There's the spirit and power of Elijah. All of this stuff is happening. Okay, Verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her. And they were rejoicing with her. Now some scholars conclude that Uh, She had secluded herself, Uh, she had kept herself away from the rest of the world, and that's, they had just heard of that. Uh, You can can make your own call on that. I'm not sure that we have full evidence for it, I'm not saying we don't, but it's an interesting idea. Verse 59, and it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Now, uh, look at what's just happened. There's a baby that has been born. This baby is far more than Zacharias and Elizabeth, firstborn sons, so they can continue their family name, which is an Old Testament principle as well. So, wow, that's really great, okay? But there's something more that's going on here. And I love the fact that the entire community seems to show up in this situation. Remember what that verse said again. It says, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise him. Have you ever thought about that? They came to circumcise him. Wouldn't you just take your kid to the service? we got a dedication service that we're going to do, and we're going to take our kid up. Nope. The whole church came to us. It's the eighth day. Where's the boy? (laughs) Can you imagine this happening? Okay. They came to him. What are we supposed to conclude from this? What we're to conclude from this is that the uh, covenant identity of the Israelite people was so strong that the entire community believed this thing needed to be done. This was not the small decision of a mom and a dad. This was not, and I'm not talking about a Hillary Clinton idea where it takes a a community to raise a child. That's not what I'm getting at. What I am getting at is that their covenant idea was so rich and so strong, it was the eighth day. This was the time that this needed to happen. And so they came to do this, verse 57, 58. Her neighbors and her relatives heard this, 59. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise uh, the child. Another identity piece, another important covenant identity piece, was the name of children. Notice it says, and they were going to call him Zacharias. (laughs) My birth certificate, I'll put on it what I want to put on it. That's not really how we're reading this. What we should conclude from this is that they were supposing to call him Zacharias. Why? Because that's what they did. That's what this is. This is just how it happened in their day. This is the line of your father, so we're going to do this exact same thing. But then something really interesting happens. Mom spoke up. 
That's not actually that interesting, but, it is, but it's amazing, okay? <laughs> Sorry, that was, I got moms giving me a death stare now. Okay, but his mother answered and said, sit down and be quiet. No, his mother said, no indeed, but he shall be called John. And look at what happens next. It says, they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. I'd love to see this happen inside of a hospital where all your family comes in to see you giving birth and you're like, I think we should call him after his dad. And the mom's like, no, sit down, be quiet. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no one named after this. I don't care. My child, I'll name him what I want to name him. Okay, that's a 21st century you know, individualistic mindset going on here. So, so it says, no indeed, but his name shall be called John. Now, where did we hear his name shall be called John? Gabriel is the one who gave him this name. This was not a spat between a mom and a dad. This was not a dad, get in your place because mom's naming your kid, deal with it. That's not how you read it. The angel gave the name. Apparently Elizabeth knew that the angel gave the name, probably because Zacharias told her in a written form of some kind. And so... She says, his name shall be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted to call him. Okay, dad, what's the deal here? Verse 63, and he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. Now the tablet that he would have written on, based on this time frame in history, would have been a, uh, a piece of wood, probably acacia wood or something like this, some common wood, and it was covered in wax, And so they would scratch out little letters or whatever. And then they'd melt more wax and do it again. Okay, So it was a a repeatable tablet in some kind of way. So he, he scratches this out on the tablet, and here's what he says. He says, his name is John. And they were all astonished. Now, you and I read this, and we go, why are they astonished? Like, they talked. This is not that complicated. This doesn't, this doesn't even make any sense. There's not something miraculous going on here. Zacharias told Elizabeth we should call him John. Elizabeth says, yep, that's absolutely what we should call him. The marveling of these people was that his name should be John. The marveling of this people is that you would break tradition, that you would break some sort of plan. What is happening here? And that mom and dad are in agreement on this and that we need to go with this whole situation. All of this, they will most likely come to find out, is at the request of an angel. Verse 64, and at once his mouth was opened, so he writes this out. He says, his name is John, and they were all astonished, 64. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. Not just that there was a baby, not just that his name was John, which breaks tradition, but including Most assuredly, all that he was supposed to do. But what he was supposed to do was not fully known. Look at verse 66. All who heard them kept them in mind, kept all the things that they had heard in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. You don't say that the hand of the Lord is with a child just because his mom and dad agree to change his name from a family tradition. 
There's something that they know about this baby. Something that they've been told that this baby is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That this baby is going to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers or vice versa. The fathers back to the children. There's something big going on with this. And so all the people in this area are marveling. Now, here's a piece that I talked about two weeks ago that I want to bring back up. And that was the piece about doubt and about faith. Do you remember the three points about our doubt that we need to make sure we bring to the table each time? Number one is an honesty about our doubt. How many of you know that you need to be honest about your doubt because God already knows what you're doubting? He knows what you're struggling with. Number two, you need to seek to actually find an answer. Contrary to popular belief, seeking to seek is not noble. It's nonsense, okay? So seek to find an answer. But the third one is the tricky one. The third one is the part where we all fall short. And that is, when we find the answer, when God gives the answer, what should we do? Believe it. And we should walk in that answer. Now, show of hands, how many would say, I don't have a problem being honest with my doubts. I don't have a problem being honest with my doubts. How many of you say, when I seek, I want to find an answer. I don't want to just play a game. It's fine. I seek to find an answer. How many of you say there are times when God gives an answer and I just don't like it? Yep, there it is. Okay? I want an answer. God gave an answer. I just don't like the answer. Guess what that means? That means you're keeping company with Zacharias. That means you're just like Zacharias. And so Zacharias hears this answer and he goes, how do I know this for sure? I'm not, I'm not sure about this. Now, the angel told him something. He said, you're going to be struck with muteness. You're, you're not going to be able to speak until all of these things are fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but that could mean a whole lot of things. You just told me that this kid's going to come in the, present, in the spirit of Elijah. You also said he's going to turn the father's hearts back to the children. Am I going to be mute until that happens? Or am I going to be mute until something else happens? And it turns out he was mute until one important event happened, and that is that he names the kid John. It says that he names the kid John, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And we're going to get to what he does inside of this. But here's the principle on doubt that is important. Just because you do not accept what God says to you in the moment he says it to you, does not necessarily imply that he has rejected you. He did not reject Zacharias and say, fine, I'll find somebody else. He kept with Zacharias, and he gives Zacharias an opportunity to come to faith, to come to trust him. And Zacharias does, but Zacharias takes a step. He has to do something, and Zacharias follows what that angel says. Name your kid John. So he does. He says, okay, his name is John. And as soon as he names him John, everything is broken free. Here's your principle. Here's the important thing for you to remember. God has told each and every one of you something. He has said, here is my will. Here is what I want from you. Here is how I expect you to live your life. Here is how you should do this or that. And you have rejected. You have resisted. You have fought with him. And here's the problem. The outflow in your life is that you feel distant from God. The outflow of your life is that you feel that the communication level has been broken down between you and God. It has. Okay? Here's the solution. Get back on the horse and do what he said. 
Name the kid John. Get back on the horse. You've got to do what God has called you to do. So Zacharias does it. He names the kid John, and boom, his mouth is opened. And as soon as his mouth is opened, do you know what the first thing that came out of his mouth was? Praise. First thing that comes out of Zacharias' mouth is praise. All who kept these things in mind were saying, what then will this child be? But look at what 64 said. And once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, he began to speak praise of God. That praise is found in 67 through the end of the chapter. Let's look at that praise briefly so that we can kind of see the, the bigness of what had happened to Zacharias, Elizabeth, and the world at large. And his father Zacharias, 67, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. God has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people? It's a kid named John. Couldn't have just called him Jonathan? Couldn't have gone with a better name? Sorry, Johns. Anyway, every John in here is like, jerk. I don't know what your problem is. Think about this, right? Think about this. He has, he's praised God and said, you've raised up a horn of salvation for us. Here's salvation. In the house of your servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, salvation from our enemies. You see salvation happening in all of this. But verse 68 said, he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. What is is this baby supposed to help do? Usher in the hopes of Israel. They had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. They'd been longing for this whole story to be brought to its fullness. And John is going to be a participant in bringing that story around for God's people. When when Zacharias went into the temple and offered incense, which were the prayers of the people, what were the prayers of the people? God, deliver us. God, redeem us. God, save us. God, at least speak to us. We haven't heard you in 400 years. You said all those years ago that you were going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And we're further divided and further splintered than ever before. God, where are you? And all of a sudden, in this child, And in the angel that visits Mary and the angel that visits both Gabriel, visits Zacharias. In this child, John the Baptist, and the one that he prepares the way for, God is answering all of the cries and all of the needs of his people. So verse 71 says, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. Last week we talked about what that salvation was. It was salvation, yes, in the spiritual, sure. There's an enemy and they had that same enemy. But their salvation was very physical and very real. They wanted a salvation from Rome. They wanted a salvation from the oppressing regimes around them. And guess what? Zacharias seems to believe that God has brought in that salvation through this child. Now, let's rewind just a little bit and look at the tenses of this. 
This is so important. I talked about those tenses of salvation last week. 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited us and accomplished, done, past tense. It's already over. What? The kid hasn't even grown up yet. We're still under Roman occupation. We're st- what happened, Lord? Yeah, it was accomplished in that moment. There are many things that God has spoken, and he has spoken them in the past tense. And our problem is we don't believe them as though they are. I'm not talking about name it, claim it nonsense. Listen to me very clearly. Prosperity gospel and name it, claim it stuff is you making up something God said to you and you claiming it before it ever shows up. Most likely it's not going to show up. What I'm talking about are the promises God gave. God said this would be. And you stand on that promise. You stand on that promise and you say, it is true in my life. Past tense, he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The progression is that he has raised them up. We just haven't fully seen everything that plays out, but it is done. Verse 70, he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. From of when? From of old. He spoke from them, and look at what he's done. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. So everything that was past tense of the redemption accomplished was referring to the salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers. And this is where it's going to pick. This is where I I had a coffee with a friend and and he, he was very gracious to me and asked me some important questions. And those important questions included, hey, when you're talking to our congregation, when you're talking to our people, who, who are you talking to? Are you talking to specific individuals? Are you talking to the whole? Are you talking to the big C church? Who are you talking to? And I, I'm going to make a promise to you that as I continue to preach and teach, I'll do a better job of, of sharing with you the target of my instruction. But for right now, I want you to know that the target of my instruction is all y'all. <laughs> right now, all y'all. And I know, I know that this can potentially step on toes, but I am not intending to be harsh. I'm intending to be loving to you. I hope that you'll hear my tone and understand my heart in all of this. When John was promised and when John came, God's answer, God's, uh, Zacharias' prophecy was that God's answer was that God had shown mercy toward our fathers. They believed themselves to be intimately connected with a story They did not live like you and I live today, which is all about me. All about selfish little old me. Why do I do this today? Because it pleases me. Why do I not do this the next day? Because I don't want to. Why do I not go to the temple and pray on a regular basis? Because I don't have time for that. God knows my heart. You aren't reading the Bible. 
what you're doing is reading the selfish book that has been written called the book of you, the book of me, and we make everything in our life about that and nothing about a covenant people, about a set-apart people, about people who make sacrifices and give their entire life for the storyline that God has for them. We don't do it. We don't do it. I know that there's a lot of sickness going around. And again, I'm talking to all y'all. I'm ta- there's a lot of sickness going around. But I want you to look around at the seats that are next to you and the empty seats. I'm telling you what those seats are empty for. One, sickness. Two, because church is just an option. Let's be honest about it. Number three, we just ain't that flashy. Right? There's all kinds of reasons, right? There's all kinds of reasons. But I want you guys to hear something very, very important. We don't believe in the story that we proclaim to the world. We tell people, come and know a man that saved me. Come and meet the family he gave me. And most of us treat this family exactly like we treat our earthly family. You don't want to meet Uncle John. You don't want to come in and meet Phil. Whoo, boy. (laughs) And as much as any pastor can ever resemble a father of a family, I know how it works. Listen, I know how it works. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm not used to it still. But I know how it works. Well, our church is cool. Yeah, Nathan rubs some people the wrong way. He says some harsh things. You know what? All churches are the same. Just figure one out. You can do that. That's not true either. All churches are definitely not created equal. Doesn't mean that we only, we're the only ones who get it right. We're the only ones who know Jesus. We're amazing. You guys love that voice, and I don't want to know why. Anyway, what I'm trying to show you in this picture here is that God had mercy towards the fathers of Israel. God had answered covenant promises of long ages past, and they believed in that identity. Zacharias never once says, and you answered my prayer, I finally got little Johnny, and we can go play baseball together and forget about God because we don't have time for that. I know. I know. I know how it feels. I get it. And you can do with my statements what you want. You can write me off as a crazy man. It's okay. But what I want you to know is that God's covenant people believed themselves to be in a story that far surpassed themselves as individuals. And we believe ourselves to be in a story that goes no farther than my salvation. It's between me and God. I'll do whatever I want. Simply not the story of the Bible, church. And we need to repent. We need to repent. The church ought, the world ought to see the church flocking to one another. It doesn't. It sees options. It sees an entertainment venue that happens on the weekend, and you can go if you want to. How many of you know that there's truth in what I'm saying? How many of you struggle with it, though? 
heart. So Zacharias prophesies and he says, and he's praising God and he's declaring this. He says, you showed mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Why did God fulfill his word? Because he's a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. What was the praise about? God and God doing what God said God would do. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. God swore to Abraham our father. He didn't say the oath which he swore to Abraham who just happened to be a really, really special guy who God did this all because Abraham was so stinking cool. No, God did it because God made a promise. Verse 74, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And now we know why God did it. God did it so each one of us him without fear. Do you know why he redeemed you and why you get to go to church? So that you can serve God without fear. We're so far from serving God with or without fear. We're all about serving God with or without convenience. Sticky, isn't it? I don't think we look anything like a people of this kind of covenant life. So, with holiness and righteousness, verse 75, before him all of our days, by the way, how we live in view of mercy is always going to be with holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. By the way, that's how you know salvation, through the forgiveness of your sins, through a repentant life lived after God. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in the spirit. And he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Now, there are practical applications and I've dealt a lot with those as we've gone through this message. But the practical challenge that I want to set before you today is a practical challenge that says, in view of what has been done for us, and by the way, it's been done. It's been done. It's taken care of. It's in the past. It's set for you. It will unfold. There will be moments and components of it that unfold throughout our lives, but it is done in our life. The challenge that I have for you is that in view of that being done for you, I would ask that you would live it. I'm asking that you would live it. And here's what it means to live it. Number one, it means show up to church. Now I'm talking to all the people who showed up at church. <laughs> so Facebook, I'm talking to you right now. Am I on that camera? Or the, I hate this kind of thing. So anyway, Facebook, show up at church. Why? Not because you happen to be sick or some catastrophic situation happened. I get it. I understand those things. That's the only benefit to having a digital world. 
Did you know that? The benefit to a digital world is says when you have no other way to get to these walls, you can, you can watch online and it's an amazing thing. And I have been a personal beneficiary of this for the past four weeks, six weeks. My family's been sick perpetually and Sarah has been able to be a part of church in some way while she sits and watches online. Pretty powerful, okay? Pretty powerful. But here is what happens. We use that as an excuse and then we just don't show up. How many of you know that that's the case? Path of least resistance. (laughs) Come on, come on. We're all those people whether we like this or not or like to admit it. Step one, show up to church. Why? It is not because I need you to hear me. I might, it might take the rest of my life to convince some of you of that. I, you can hear me, you can hear Barney, I can hang it up, and you can hear anybody. It doesn't matter. The reason why I ask you to be here is because every person that's sitting in these seats right now has something to offer you, and you have something to offer them. There is life inside of a community. There is life inside of people who will live next to you and share their stories Even if that story is, life has been really hard this week, but Jesus has brought us through. Amen? God made a covenant people. He made a family. And we have done the same thing with the church. Hear me out. We've done the same thing with the church that we've done with our extended families. Do you know that just 50 years ago, just 60 years ago, it was a common thing for families on a weekly basis to flock together, to get together, to eat way too much food. And somehow they still watch their waistlines, right? But they, they got together, they ate a bunch of food, they enjoyed fellowship with each other. What has happened in the nuclear family of the world today? What has happened? It is broken down and nobody talks to the other people. Is this true? Is this true? I'll ask you a hard question. When's the last time you called your mom? Yeah. You, you get my exception. You get my exception if your mom is in heaven, right? But here's my point. We don't. We don't reach out. And then guess what we've done? We've made that mo- model match the church. When do we spend time together? Whenever I feel like it. Whenever I feel like it. It's just, this is just too hard. This is too much. Okay. I understand. So step one, show up to church. Step two, Get involved in the lives of someone in this church. Studies show that point of contact makes all the difference in longevity in a church. When you have three people that you talk to all the time, you will not last long in any community. Because those people have you as their connection, and when somebody walks away, somebody leaves, you will too before long. It's, it is a proven fact. You actually aren't as original as you think you are. You're following after everybody and what they do. It's amazing how this works. What you need is multiple points of community and contact because the church is not just what Nathan says on Sunday morning. That was a little too quick, Tina. She amen me too quick there. The church is far more than just what gets shared from the sermon. 
the church is far more than a sermon. The church is far more than the songs we pick. The church is definitely far more than, hey, we served coffee, we got clean bathrooms, and a kid's church. Number one, come to church. Number two, make points of contact. Every time we do something where we do, we do fellowship, where we spend time with a potluck, or we do a, we do a meet and greet or something, stick around. Hang out. Live life with the people around you, okay? Number three, number three is pray for your church. Pray for your church. Show up to your church. Make points of contact with your church. Pray for your church. Pray for your church. We need it. Each and every one of us. I don't know how accurate all the stats are out there, but there's some pretty seriously accurate stats that talk about the ups and downs of church leadership and church life. And those things are deeply affected by the community that we're hoping to build. Could you imagine being a mom and dad wanting to grow your family to the point where they, they wanted to be together You've spent a lot of time saying, I want you guys to have fun with each other, to love each other, to, to be in, in community and fellowship with one another. How much would you, what would you do if you spent all this time working at that and your kids just basically said, we don't care. We're going to go live wherever we want and do whatever we want and we don't care. You would be heartbroken, wouldn't you? Because you've invested a lot in creating that community. And this is what happens in leadership. We invest a lot in trying to create community. And then it's like, that's good. This is more like a movie on the weekend. It's not even a good movie. Trust me, I've heard me preach. Right? I know how this works. But I want you to, I want you to come to church. I want you to get points of contact with your church. I want you to pray for your church. And then this is the sticky one that I think many people hate pastors to talk about. The only way that we can get more people into these doors, the only way that we can increase the size of this family is if you will brag about your church. Tell people about your church. That is not the same as preaching the gospel. This is more just personal advertisement. Okay? I'm serious. <laughs> I was in a church for many years where uh, we gave away bottles of water and on the labels it gave the church name. And we talked about it all the time about how we were doing evangelism. Servant evangelism, no less. We were serving people because middle class Americans need bottles of water because they're dying. Anyway, so we would give away bottles. I'm not jaded at all. Not, not even close, right? So finally we had a meeting one day and I said, guys, we need to talk about this. And they said, okay. And I said, this is not evangelism. This is advertisement. Can we just call it what it is? No. This is evangelism. We are reaching out to people who are in need. Yeah. You know how many days I just walk down the street and I'm so parched for thirst and I'm like, gosh, please send someone to deliver me a bottle of water. It's never happened in my life. Never happened. Right? Because we make it about evangelism, or we make evangelism about advertisement, I'm just here to tell you that I'm going to divide the difference, show you the difference. I want you to advertise for your church. I want you to tell people about the good thing that you found, if you believe this family is a good thing that you found. I want you to tell them. I want you to share it. Of course I do. I also want you to preach the gospel. There's a sticky one. 
there's one everybody hates because now you have to open your mouth and potentially screw the whole thing up. <laughs> Guess what? You're going to. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. There was, a, there was a man named Apollos in the New Testament. I'm going I'm to quit rambling, I promise. There's a man named Apollos in the New Testament, and guess what Apollos did? Apollos was one of the best communicators in that ancient world. He was a rhetorician. He, he knew rhetoric well. He could speak. People loved to hear him speak. That's powerful. Guess what? He also didn't know the gospel fully and understand it fully. And so what happened? He had to have somebody come in and correct him. So he has to have somebody come in and explain the gospel to him a little bit clearer. Then he was good and accurate. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. You know what I'm saying? He was good and accurate. But we can go out into the world and we can be really good at communicating and not communicate the story correctly. Well, let's accept correction. Let's get ourselves better. Let's work at how we deliver it. Even Apollos, who was as good as he was, needed to be corrected. He needed to be adjusted in his understanding. You are going to need adjusted. It's, it's a fact. I've been doing this most of my life, and I still need adjusted in my understanding of things. So I want to encourage you to understand the gospel a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. But start now. Share with people about the truth of Jesus. Share with people about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Share with people about the family you have. All of this is interesting because we're coming up on Easter. And Easter marks is the most important, uh, the most important arguably the most important uh, celebration of the church. Because why? We celebrate the resurrection. And Paul told us without the resurrection we are dead. Our faith is futile, it's pointless, it doesn't make any sense. But with the resurrection, we are a people of life. And so the resurrection is all about what we're all about, or we should be all about the resurrection. In the seven weeks or six weeks that we have coming up to Easter, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to show up to church. I want to challenge you to uh, invite people to your church. Okay? I want to I challenge you to pray for your church. Okay? I want to encourage you to do the things that I've shared with you this morning. I want to see a church not filled with people so our egos can be stroked. I want to see a, a church filled with people because Jesus wants people to know him. And he wants more brothers and sisters in his family. Amen? But guess what that, what that or guess who that lands on? And me. But it lands on us as a collective, as a body of Christ. All of this great story is amazing. We're going to continue to roll into it next week. But I want to encourage you, uh, get yourself attached to the deeper story that we're a part of. Because if the story that you're a part of is just your individual story, it will, it will be short-lived. It's too small to matter. My story is too small to matter. God's story is too big not to brag about. It's too big not to tell the world about. It's too big to sit by and act as though God is going to say, well done, good and faithful pew sitter. He's not. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant who went into all the world and told people of my, of my son. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.